chapter. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Philippians 3. Yeah, yeah, sure. Can you give it to me? Thank you. I asked Melissa to grab each week notes so that I remember what are actually in the notes, which is a good thing, right? Okay, now there's just more nervousness. So I've got a dear brother um, who doesn't get excited about food. Now, I've got actually several, but uh, one I know, for him, all burgers are pretty much the same. A pizza is just a pizza. For them, and some of you can't, can't relate to this, there's no real fun in finding the best. Many of us, though, enjoy finding the perfect cup of coffee or finding the best pizza in Orange County. I've got plans later to uh, extend my search. But when it comes to the pursuit of God-pleasing perfection, many of us get skittish. When it comes to the pursuit of God-pleasing perfection, many of us get uncomfortable. Maybe you're already uncomfortable. Where's this going? Some of us have earnestly tried in the past, only to find ourselves overwhelmed by guilt as we see our failures and the distance that there's between us and God and His holiness. Some of us have chosen to not even try because of how great the distance is. Just kind of try to avoid major sins. Some of us have decided not to focus on sanctification, which is the pursuit of holiness. And really, ultimately, sanctification is another way to talk about the pursuit of God-pleasing perfection. And instead, only, exclusively, rests on their justification, on the finished work of Christ. But we're going to see the, this morning that these attitudes fall short of what God desires from us. We're going to see this morning that mature Christians continue to exert themselves in the pursuit of God-pleasing perfection. Mature Christians continue to exert themselves in the pursuit of God-pleasing perfection. Now, there's lots of things we could say about what that doesn't mean. Okay, we are not saying, for the record, I hope that no one comes in late and misses this part, that perfection is attainable in this life. We're not saying that in this life we can ever get to the point where we stop sinning, where we don't have any sinful thoughts or sinful words or sinful actions. We know that we have been liberated from sin if we have new life in Jesus Christ, that we are no longer sold as slaves to sin, that we have the ability to obey because Christ rose from the dead. But we are still in the sinful flesh, that we still have a propensity and desires to sin. So we're not saying that perfection is attainable in this life. But we are talking about pursuing it. Neither are we talking about earning your acceptance before God. And that has to be so clear. When we're talking about striving for perfection and pursuing God-pleasing perfection, we are not talking about you getting yourself to a place where you are so perfect that God would say, come on into my heaven. Right? We know that that's impossible apart from Jesus Christ. That the only way to be justified, to be declared righteous, is in Jesus Christ. It is because of his perfect obedience 
and his taking the punishment of sinners. It's only through faith in him alone that we can ever be declared righteous. So when we talk about God-pleasing, pursuit of God-pleasing perfection, we're not talking about attaining perfection in this life. We're not talking about earning our acceptance before God or getting ourselves justified. And I know that by choosing the word perfection, I'm choosing a more challenging word than sanctification. Not only does Paul use it in this passage, although it's a translated word there, of course the word is different in Greek. But I think sanctification is a word that sometimes we can get get sluggish about. We can just see it as a a, a long upward process that's going to kind of happen really no matter if we work at it or not. Sanctification, it's it's just kind of something that we just gradually do as Christians. We gradually become more holy. And that's true if we are faithfully pursuing him. I think when we're talking about pursuing perfection, that really is, I I know, it's another way of talking about sanctification. It is where our sanctification is going. It's a little bit more focused on the end result. It is what we are pursuing. We are pursuing holiness. We are pursuing perfection. We are pursuing to be sinless. Another word that we could use would be glorification. But I think, and I thought about using that word, but that's also a tough word to to use. We're pursuing sanctification might leave some of us, although not doctrinally, but practically as we get used to hearing that a, a little sluggish, pursuing glorification seems straight up impossible. Because when are we glorified? When we die. Right? So pursuing that, when we, to, to, to pursue what Christ is going to do when we die, to make us perfectly like himself when we receive our new resurrected bodies when we are glorified, pursue glorification. And I would say that that's true too. So we really are this morning talking about pursuing sanctification. We're talking about pursuing glorification, but I've chose to focus on this word, pursuing God-pleasing perfection, because I think, I, I think it puts us in a slightly awkward place. And that's not bad. God's messenger, the apostle Paul, wrote to the church at Philippi for several reasons. And we've seen some of these already. Practically, it was a report of how Paul was doing while he was in prison, awaiting trial before Emperor Nero, not for anything he had done for the preaching of God's word. The book of Philippians is also a thank you note to Philippi for their financial support of him. It was a call to the church to be humble towards unity, towards perseverance in the face of suffering. But as we saw in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul had another purpose too. It was also a letter warning against false teachers who taught that the believers could improve upon their standing with God by following Old Testament law, by adding to their confession of Christ Old Testament ritual. And we saw particularly circumcision. So we've seen in Philippians 3 how Paul responds to that. He talks about how before, as a Pharisee, he had attained as much righteousness as anyone could without Christ, and it had accomplished him nothing. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, and I'll read that again here in a minute. Paul responded that it's impossible, it's incompatible to place both our confidence in our flesh, in our actions, in what we do, and in Christ alone. In verses 9 through 11, we saw how valuable it was to gain Christ. 
To gain Christ is to gain righteousness. To gain Christ is to gain transformation. To gain Christ is ultimately to gain glorification of the resurrection of the dead. So in Philippians 12, verses 3, verses 12 through 16, the verses we're going to focus on this morning, we're going to see how Paul responds to this good news of gaining Christ, to this good news that in Christ we have righteousness, in Christ we have transformation, in Christ we have glorification. So open your Bibles to Philippians 3 if you haven't already. I'm going to read verses 7 through 16 to catch us up a little bit and then to see the passage we're going to focus on this morning, verses 12 through 16. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which, I, for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for you preserving your word for us. We read in Psalm 19 that your word is perfect and that it revives our souls, um, that it makes wise a simple, that it enlightens our eyes, that it brings fear of you that is pleasing to you, that endures forever. We thank you, Father, for preserving your word for us. We thank you, Lord, that in the original letter that Paul wrote, it was an original manuscript, Lord. It had no errors. It was perfect. And we thank you for preserving it for us, that the truth of your word is kept perfectly for us so that we can know how to be pleasing to you. Father, I do uh, uh, sense a challenge this morning at what we ought to do with what Paul describes here about his, about his own pursuit of perfection. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be humble and teachable and that your spirit would use your word as explained by me. Uh, I just say that in all humility so that we can become uh, as pleasing to you as we can be in this life. Thank you, Father. Please give us ears that are ready to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to see both an example to follow and an exhortation to heed so that you'll exert yourself in the pursuit of God-pleasing perfection. So we're going to do two things. We're going to see first an example to follow and then see an exhortation to heed so that you'll exert yourself in the pursuit of God-pleasing perfection. We'll start looking at verses 12 through 14 first. Paul describes in the first person using the I, how he pursued God-pleasing perfection. Verses 12 and verses 13 to 14, as you'll see in your notes, follow a similar pattern. And I didn't want there to be any confusion, so I included the, the text of those verses right there in your notes 
so that you can see that there's a pattern there. In verse 12, Paul gives an evaluation of himself. He describes his exertion, and then he describes his motivation. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see in a very parallel way, he does the same thing. It's not exactly saying the same thing twice, but awfully close. And it's because he, he wants to emphasize it for us. Now, as we read, I doubt that many of us would only, would only say that Paul's pursuit of perfection is admirable. We don't read that and just to say, that a boy, Paul, that's great. Right? We read that and we feel a responsibility to follow his example. We know that that applies to us, even if in verses 12 through 14, there's not a specific command to us. But in case it's not obvious that Paul's pursuit of perfection is worth our imitation, jump down to verse 15. I just read it. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Paul includes himself in this group. Let us, therefore... And it says as many as are perfect, and that doesn't mean perfect 100%. That, that the word can be translated in, in several ways, and we'll even see that in this passage. In this verse here, in verse 15, Paul says, to those who are mature or to those who are complete, if you consider yourself a mature Christian, let us therefore have this attitude. Describing what verses 12 through 14 is going to describe, that example. That example that Paul gives should be our attitude. We should join him in a pursuit of God-pleasing perfection. So let's go back to verses 12 through 14. We see Paul's evaluation of himself in the beginning of verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. So to know what Paul hasn't obtained, we have to look backwards at verses 9 through 11. Paul is referring there to the outcome of gaining Christ. Paul truly knew the Lord Jesus Christ, but he didn't know him as he one day would. He had yet to be found in Christ. Righteousness had been declared to his account, but he was still looking forward to that day, and we see that in verse 9. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Looking forward to standing before Christ, being declared righteous. Paul knew the power of Christ's resurrection in his life. But he hadn't yet experienced everything that Christ's resurrection power would accomplish. The glorification at the resurrection from the dead was still in Paul's future. That is what Paul says, I do not regard, oh, I'm sorry, in verse 12, not that I have already obtained. That's what Paul's talking about, not having obtained yet. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. And that second phrase, they're already become perfect, really confirms this interpretation of what Paul's talking about not having obtained. He said, I haven't already arrived. Paul was a work in progress. He knew that he hadn't been completed yet. He wasn't the finished product. God hadn't achieved yet his final goal in saving Paul. He fell short of that perfect Christ-likeness, of being conformed to the image of Christ, even as he increasingly conformed to Christ in his death. Now, perhaps it's possible that, and, and, and the text doesn't make this clear, we, ha we have to speculate, that a false teaching had spread in Philippi that the saints could reach perfection in this life. 
And that's maybe why Paul is really emphasizing, I haven't obtained it. I'm still striving for it. He's not talking about his justification before the Lord. He's already been declared righteous. But what's going on practically in this life now, in his sanctification, he says, I haven't arrived. If I, so, Now, some of you um, and many of us have experienced life as a senior, whether in high school or in college. You know how much seniors accomplish after spring break. Often, seniors do not accomplish very much, right? They know that they're going to graduate. Some of you recently have given, in, given your two-week notice at your job. You know the challenge of working really hard at your job when you have a new job waiting for you. Our anticipation of the future, our expectation for what's next, gets in the way of us doing our best now. But that wasn't Paul. Paul was closer to God-pleasing perfection than he had ever been. But it was still in the future. Paul still looked at the mirror of God's word, and he still found himself lacking. The reflection that he saw wasn't Christ's own reflection. But that doesn't mean that even though there was a distance between him and God, that, that, that between him and Christ, that he threw in the towel, frustrated, that he hadn't yet arrived... He didn't wallow in guilt or he didn't settle at kind of become comfortable with the level of uh, obedience he'd arrived because he had been justified. Instead, we see what Paul does. So in the beginning of verse 12, we had seen, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect. So what does he do? He exerts himself, we see next. But I press on, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that. Now, pressing on is a fine way to translate that Greek word, but we miss out that that's the same word that is in chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul describes himself as a persecutor. And persecutor is a little bit more violent word, right? It's a little more vibrant word. That, 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 that same Greek word means to chase after something, to pursue something. It was the word used in running a race, to press on. And Paul has this pursue, this pressing on in the present tense here. It's an ongoing action. The verb of Paul's life was pursue. I pursue. Before Christ, Paul hunted the church. But now, Paul hunted after God-pleasing perfection. Not to declare from God a declaration that you're righteous. But because God had declared him righteous, he says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of. When he says, may lay hold of, or in the ESV it says, make it my own. Paul had a holy discontentment in his pursuit. He wanted to seize God-pleasing perfection. He wanted to overtake the glorification that he knew was only achievable at his resurrection. But he wanted to make it his now. He wanted to chase it and capture it. To wrestle the future into the now. This wasn't to appease any guilt that he had, but to express his love for Christ. 
It's like an athlete who's in pursuit, not just of winning races, but of the world record. Someone who is not just okay winning, but dissatisfied while he still has second place. Imagine the, the, the effort it would take, not just to win gold, but to say, I want that, that world record. To keep straining after it. That's the kind of words that Paul uses here. The finished work of Christ did not lead Paul to apathy, but to exertion. He wanted to achieve in this life what he knew wouldn't be finished until the next. How often do we fall short of that? We know it's not going to be finished, so we don't strive for it. We know that this won't, this, this won't be completed until Christ returns. But the Father is pleased by our attempts at obedience. And this is what Paul's mo- motive here is. We see that which he's trying to lay hold of at the end of verse 12. For which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. For which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Here's Paul's motivation. That for which or that because there. Because I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That laid hold is the same word in the Greek as the previous laid hold. Paul wants to lay hold of perfection. To seize it, to overtake it. Because Christ has laid hold of Paul. Because Christ has seized Paul as his own. Because Christ has overtaken Paul to be his. Paul's zeal for transformation was based on Christ's own zeal to transform Paul. See, Jesus Christ redeemed Paul to make him perfect. Now, we've already talked about that we know that that's not going to be finished in this life. But that's the pursuit. That is the goal where we are going. Redemption's purpose is transformation. Redemption's purpose is liberation from sin. Redemption is to be bought from slavery to sin, from slavery to righteousness. In any sporting activity I've ever participated, I've seldom been picked first. I'm going to say maybe never. I think perhaps serving in junior high ministry... I was picked once out of pity by junior hires. Maybe, but then like everyone cheered and they knew it was a bad choice. When I did get picked first, or if I can imagine myself getting picked first, I desired to live up to that being that draft pick number one for some reason, right? I wanted to make the most of it. There was nothing in Paul that would make Christ desire him. He was persecuting the church. There was no reason the father would pick him. There's many reasons why the Father wouldn't pick that self-righteous persecutor of the church. When Paul was laid hold of by Christ, Paul was motivated by Christ's purpose. Christ has laid hold of me, so I want to lay hold of why he's laid hold of me. And it's my transformation. It's his glorification by me being changed. Are you motivated by Christ's purpose in making you his own? See, there is a for which also you were laid hold of by Christ. Christ laid hold of you.
to make you like him for his father's glory. Christ laid hold of you to make you like him for his father's glory. That's the purpose of your redemption. That's the end of saving faith. Now, as if verse 12 weren't enough, Paul expands upon his example a second time. So the Philippians see the strength of Paul's convictions. Really, he says a very similar thing second time in verses 13 and 14. So let's look at Paul's evaluation. And, and, and really, I couldn't find a better way to outline this. He really goes through the same argument twice. Beginning of verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I, I think you already said that, Paul, but he wants to make sure we get it. Brethren, brothers, brothers, listen up. Listen up. You need to hear what I'm going to repeat. And then Paul, for the sake of emphasis, he doesn't need to in the Greek. He uses both the word I and the word myself. He says, listen up. Here is how I evaluate myself. I do not think of myself as laying hold of my purpose of achieving this goal of being found in Christ. I don't, I, I don't value my, myself as having received the fullness of his resurrection power. I don't see myself as yet of having attained the resurrection of the dead, Paul says. He says, I know I haven't arrived. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. The tape at the end of the race is still there. I haven't broken through it. Again, now, maybe Paul is rebuking those in the Philippian church who had gotten a little comfortable with their sanctification. Kind of thought they basically had arrived. And so when, when, when Paul, the missionary, first brought the gospel to them, says, I'm not there yet, guys. It's a wake-up call. Okay, we're not there yet either. It could also be to encourage those who were tempted to think that they could kind of bump their sanctification to the next level by, by, by obeying Old Testament laws. And we, we, we could really do this by so many ways. We just try to boil down. If, if we just do A, B, and C, then we'll get to the next level in sanctification. But that is not the pursuit of God-pleasing perfection. That's not the pursuit of, and those may be good steps, but in itself, that's not the pursuit of obedience. We like to minimize, if I do this, this, and this, then I'll satisfy God. How slippery of a slope that is. So that's some of Paul's warning here. God is satisfied in Christ Jesus alone because of him taking the place of sinners. But that does not stop us from pursuing God-pleasing perfection. Paul corrects them by saying, I know I still have a long way to go. Now, I doubt you would say, but Paul, pretty sure I've arrived, right? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you would never say that. But does that reality lead you to exert yourself the way that Paul does? So let's look at how he exerts himself next. And really, he builds upon it. He uses that same phrase, press on, but he expands on it in the end of verse 13, the beginning of verse 14. But one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. So he uses that same word, press on, that he did in verse 12. In the middle of verse 13, he says, but one thing. 
one thing. And that I do, you can see, is, is italicized to make it better English, but just simply, but one thing. Here it is. What's your one thing? I know in the Christian life, there's really many one things, right? To love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. To glorify Christ. And I, I don't know, know if you have a purpose statement that kind of tries to put all of those together. But does your one thing include a pursuit of God-pleasing perfection? Does it include the sense that I have not arrived, that I am stri- striving and I am straining toward that for which Christ has laid hold of me? Now, unlike verse 12, that, that, and they both say press on, they both say pursue, they both, they both say I hunt after. But Paul tells how he exerts himself in verses 13 and 14. First, he exerts himself. So he says in the middle of there, verse 13, but one thing I do, and here's how he exerts himself, forgetting what lies behind. Paul intentionally forgot what was behind him, the portion of the race that he had already completed. Now, he didn't limit that verse when he says what lies behind. It obviously includes our accomplishments, our achievements, what, 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 whatever whatever level of sanctification you have, sins that you have, in a sense, defeated. Whatever you could be tempted to look back and, and to kind of pat yourself on the back on and say, look how far I've come. Maybe I'll just take it easy. But it could also include, looking back, our sins. He, he doesn't limit it here. Our sins and disappointments, our stumbles and false starts, whatever's behind you, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. I choose not to think about what's behind. And instead, second, and this is the second way he, he pursues, Paul is also reaching forward to what lies ahead. So he forgets what's behind and he presses on towards what's ahead. Now this, reaching forward, a commentator describes it as this. It's a vivid word drawn from the Olympic Games or, 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 or from, from the competitions there. It pictures a runner with his eyes fixed on the goal, his hand stretching out toward it, his body bent forward as he enters the last and decisive stages of the race. That is that reaching forward. Another one, another commentator describes straining muscles, clear focus, and complete dedication. Both forgetting what's behind and reaching forward are in the present tense. That means continuously, this is what Paul did. He continuously forgot what was behind and continuously reached forward as he presses on toward the goal. He says, reaching forward to what lies ahead, what the eye is fixed on, what the scope is zoomed in on. The runner has his eye fixed on the finish line. The word was also used in the Greek for the target that the archer has. What lies ahead of you? What are you reaching out for? For some of you, and I know this by experience, it may be getting the kids down to bed each night. That's the finish line. For some of you, it may be graduation or summer vacation. 
Some of you, maybe retirement. I'm just going to keep going until I get to this point. Of course, Paul has a completely different finish line. It is who he will be when Christ Jesus returns. It is who he will be when Christ gives him that resurrected body. But does he say, you know, that's in the distant future. I'm not going to worry about that right now. No, he, he stretches out for that now. He pursues that God-pleasing perfection in this life today. Paul's eyes were set on the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we see that that's what his motivation is. We see that in the middle of verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One, one commentator describes the prize. It's the culmination of the whole work of salvation. The culmination of the whole work of salvation. With all of its implications to which God has called us. It is the finished product of our salvation. The prize is knowing Christ. The prize is being found in Christ with his righteousness, not our own. The prize is knowing the full extent of the power of his resurrection. The prize is attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The prize is our glorification as we are fully conformed to Christ's own likeness. Now that is not a prize that we earn. Right? We are not talking about trying real hard so we get that prize. And that's where these analogies break down a little bit. This is the prize that is ours for those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Who have forsaken hope and confidence in anything else. In anything that they've done or haven't done. And put their faith in Christ alone. We know that prize is going to be given to us. But, but we are not like runners who know that that gold prize is ours and we stop running. No, we're like runners who know that gold prizes are, so we run faster. We pursue the perfection that we are going to have one day. The prize is receiving what God promised when he first called us upward, when he first called us heavenward. Paul uses the word call for God's effectual call in the preaching of the gospel. For, for when you heard the gospel and, and, and it accomplished its work, the kind of call he's talking about is not us going to a cemetery and, and saying, dead rise. Because would that have very much effect? No, no. You'd probably just make people there sad. The call is God's effectual call. When he proclaims the gospel using his messengers to sinners, and he says, dead rise, and they rise. And when they come to new life, that's, that's a call that I believe he's talking about here for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You've already, if you are in Christ Jesus, have heard the call. You have responded. You have put your faith in him. You have new life. You are in Christ Jesus. The prize is guaranteed to you. That's Paul's motivation. The prize was both the purpose of his salvation and the pursuit of his salvation. The prize was both the purpose of his salvation and the pursuit of his salvation. The reason for his salvation and the goal of his salvation. 
The prize was to glorify Christ by becoming like Christ. The reality of the prize that would be awarded, not because of the way that he ran, but because of what Christ has accomplished. The perfection that he would have motivated Paul to run with exertion, forgetting what was behind and pressing on toward what is ahead. Are you pursuing the prize of perfection in that way? Or are you, I was listening to a, a hockey game, and the uh, commentator is getting older, and he described the players, the season hasn't gone well, so now they're out there on that ice lollygagging. Are you lollygagging in your pursuit of perfection? Are you dawdling in your pursuit of perfection? Are you just strolling in a pursuit of perfection? Have you placed your pursuit of God-pleasing perfection? I'm not talking about being made right with God, but living out the rightness that God has given you. Have you placed your pursuit in neutral? Are you just letting it coast? And when you roll to an uphill, like, oh, this is going to be hard to change, you just kind of just, just let it just sit there. Are you drifting or driving toward the finish line? That is the example that Paul gives us to follow. And he follows up with an exhortation to heed. An exhortation to heed. We see that in Philippians 3, verses 15 and 16. And the first, and I try to boil these, these, these verses down, and, and I'm going to be honest, the Greek in some of these verses are very difficult. Lots of preachers have not dealt a ton with some of these phrases because they are hard. So we're going to do our best here. I believe what Paul is challenging us towards first is to pursue perfection. To pursue perfection. Let us therefore, in the beginning of verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And I read this in the beginning as proof that, that we need not just look at this and say, wow, that Paul, what a great guy. Now he says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And we have to begin by returning to that word perfect. Paul's intention is not for the Philippians to say, well, I know I'm not perfect, and I definitely know that they're not perfect. Uh, so uh, who's Paul talking to? No, the word also means mature or complete or grown up. It's tempting to think that Paul is talking to those who think of themselves as mature. So you mature ones, you need to follow my example. But he doesn't do that. It's more gentle. He includes himself in this exhortation. It's in the first person plural. Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. Let us, together, have this attitude. By God's grace, you will be able to say, if you aren't already, wow. God has changed me. I'm not who I once was. By God's grace, I have a solid doctrinal foundation. There's still things I don't understand, but, but I can read God's word. I'm saying no to sin. What used to enslave me doesn't anymore. By God's grace, I've become a Psalm 1 man. What we read in Romans 1 doesn't describe me anymore. Or maybe I, I'm a woman who has the Beatitudes in my life. I am blessed. I'm becoming who Christ intended me to be. 
That is what it means to be a mature person, someone who's changing. That was true of the Philippian church, and you've seen that as we read through Philippians. It's a very encouraging letter. There was lots of good growth. There were some trouble spots, but there was lots of good growth there. So Paul writes to them as a mature church. And he doesn't begin with a command, but really with a friendly exhortation to them. Let us have this attitude. An attitude, this way of thinking, refers back to verses 12 to 14. Everything I described there, the way I, Paul says, I evaluate myself, the way I exert myself, the way I'm motivated by what I will receive one day in Christ Jesus. Think that way. Make that your pursuit. You pursue perfection along with me. Let's do this together. That's what mature Christians do. They don't settle. They don't get lazy. They don't go into neutral. They don't get satisfied with a few major sins. With victory over them. So he says, let us therefore have this attitude. Ours is not a hopeless pursuit. I was thinking uh, about this, and I don't know how many of you tried as kids uh, a, a model, right? And you buy a model, and then you get it home, and you realize there's lots of little parts, and you're supposed to get an exacto blade to kind of cut off the little parts. I don't know, have any of you ever done that? A little process, and, and, and somewhere in the middle, you're like, this is a disaster. What was I thinking? Wouldn't it be nice if the model came with a guarantee? All you have to do is work hard, and it will look as good as it does the picture on the box. That is the promise we have as we pursue perfection. You will look like Jesus Christ. You will one day be glorified if you have true faith in him. So do the work now. Pursue perfection. Have the same attitude. Evaluate yourself accurately. Exert yourself in this God-pleasing pursuit of perfection. Be motivated by what Christ will transform you to. So that's the first exhortation we get as Paul concludes here. The second is we need to seek wisdom. We need to seek wisdom. Paul says, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. If anything you have a different attitude, God will, will reveal that also to you. So Paul's not saying, think like me, have this attitude. But if you don't, in fact, if you have a different view of sanctification, one which you really don't have to exert yourself, that's okay, because God will reveal that to you. Paul's not saying that. Paul would never say, you know, I really work hard at reaching the finish line, but you don't have to. Paul's not undermining here what he just said, although it sounds like that a little bit. And this is the part where I said the Greek is really challenging. I think Paul's saying, if you have a different viewpoint from me on, on anything else, on the things I haven't spoken about, about clearly to you, or, or, or specifically, God will reveal that to you. As we pursue God-pleasing perfection, we'll need wisdom in many, many choices in which Scripture gives us principles, but not the 
exact way to apply. We're going to need wisdom. And I think that that's why Paul really begins praying in the beginning of Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. That's what Paul's talking about here. Growing in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, so that you may make the best possible choice in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. And that's what Paul prays for them, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that they would be growing in wisdom, so they would be as pleasing to God as possible. We need knowledge and discernment so that we approve the things that are excellent as we pursue this God-pleasing perfection. Paul doesn't say, now Paul doesn't say here, when God is going to reveal to us what are the, the quality of our attitude. And then in 15 he says, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. He doesn't tell us when. Perhaps it as we delve into God's word. And as we grow in our understanding of God's word, we look back at past choices and say, I could have pleased God more there. It could also be as we talk to godly men and women who know God's word. And there we, we get fresh eyes on how we're trying to please the Lord as we pursue perfection. Or it could be, and I'm sure this is all of us, we're only going to really get the wisdom in how our thinking has been in our pursuit of perfection when we stand before the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 13, Paul talks about, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, he's talking about the quality of someone's work, will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Maybe that's what Paul's saying here. And that's definitely true of some things. You're not going to really know how your attempts at God-pleasing perfection are in every area. Did you please him? Until God exposes that with, with, with fire, until he judges the quality of your work. So in our pursuit of perfection, what's the exhortation we need to take away? We need to pursue perfection. As we make it our aim to please him, we need to have wisdom. We need to seek wisdom. We need to be as wise as possible. We don't want to leave ourselves saying, wow, I really think differently than Paul on this. I know Paul wouldn't see that movie, but I'm totally fine with it. Right? Like, we've got to pursue wisdom as we seek to pursue perfection. And last, we need to continue faithfully. We see that in verse 16. Paul says, however... Let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. However, let us keep living by that same standard to, to which we attain. And I'm going to move back up to, to, to verse 15 and 16 so we don't lose the flow. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. So, as, as we're mature, we should keep pursuing perfection. If God has grown you, keep pursuing perfection. And if in anything you have a different attitude... Either I've not spoken about it, you disagree with me on some other point, God will reveal that also to you. We need to be pursuing wisdom. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. However, only in any case, 
even if, even, even if you think otherwise about some of the specifics, don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked. And many of us, as we pursue perfection, as we pursue sanctification, as we wait for glorification, we can get sidetracked into many, and we call them gray areas. Right? We, 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 we stop pursuing perfection because we're so concerned if, if we can watch this movie or not. That's, those are great questions to have. But we need to be pursuing perfection in all of our lives. Paul speaks again in the plural. Let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Together, Paul says, we've attained a certain level of Christ-likeness, of becoming who we will forever be. And that's true by God's grace of this church. We are more like, Je like Jesus Christ than we once were. And by God's grace, come back in a month and we'll be more like him again. And in another year, we'll be more like him. So to, so, so to the measure that we have attained, to how we are becoming like Jesus Christ, there has been growth. We've reached a level of maturity. We're going to bring our daughters for their checkup soon. And they're going to measure how long they are and how much, weight, how much they weigh. And they, 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 they tell how they're doing on the growth charts. We can measure ourselves with God's word. And by God's grace, you will see growth as you pursue God-pleasing per perfection. I think you can do that for us as a church as a whole. You can do that as a, an individual. So to the measure that you've attained, he says... Let us hold to keep living by that same standard. Or let us hold true. And the word there was originally used of marching in a line as someone followed orders. So as we march together, as we make progress together, as we advance together, it becomes used in the New Testament to follow a standard or, or a rule. We can only pursue perfection faithfully. We can only continue faithfully if we together are following the same standard, the same rule. And that means that we need to keep holding true to the gospel. We need to keep having our faith in Christ alone. We need to keep holding to him as our only hope for salvation. But it also means that we need to hold true to the instruction that God has given. To all of his instructions about our speech, about our conduct, about our love, about our faith, about our purity, about our roles as husbands and wives, about our roles as children, about our roles as workers. We must hold to the instruction that we've been given. That includes Paul's exhortation here to pursue God-pleasing perfection. This is the standard. This is the rule that we've been given. This is what mature Christians do. They don't coast. They don't mail it in because they know that Jesus is going to finish it off. They keep pursuing God-pleasing perfection. It's like the race car heading in the final lap of the finish line. Recently, for some reason, I watched Cars 3 with my daughters. I won't spoil anything. There's a scene where one of the cars, it's, he sees the finish line. He wants to win. And so he bypasses the gas because he doesn't need it. And he bypasses the tire change. And he just keeps going. He's all in. That's why every race car does, if they think that they can get that prize. And that is what we need to do as we pursue perfection. 
We need to be all in after that prize, the prize that we know is coming to us. Because that is what mature Christians does. That's what we saw in Paul's example. Not that I've already obtained, I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, he has laid hold of you for a purpose. That is to make him like himself. So pursue that. Chase after it. Seize hold of it. Make it your own. Is your eye on the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are you pressing on and pursuing the perfection that will one day be yours? If you're in Christ Jesus, it's guaranteed. So become now who you will be. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Father, um, Lord, we thank you for preserving Paul's own personal testimony for us. And it's challenging. Father, here is um, someone who wrote... Not just the book on justification, but books on justification. We have so much clearer understanding of the gospel because of what Paul has written. He got it. He got the mystery of union with Christ. He understood dependence upon your spirit. But he also had such exertion and such effort to become what he knew he would become. Father, it is humbling It is deeply humbling for me personally to think of how easy it is to coast and not pursue the perfection that pleases you. Lord, we confess wholeheartedly we are not going to be perfect in this life. We know that it is only by grace alone that we will ever be truly pleasing to you. But Lord, we humbly ask for hearts that, that, that desire to please you more that are not content with, 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 with pride, not content with judging our brothers and sisters, not content with gossip, not content with lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and pride of life, Lord, not content with, with us sloughing off in our responsibilities as, as, as fathers and wives or, or husbands and, and, and fathers and, you know, Lord, in the roles that you've given us and our, our roles at work in our relationships as brothers and sisters in, in Christ, Lord. Father, we want to be wholeheartedly in what you have called us to be. So please, Father, help us, Lord, to exert ourselves. And I pray that today would be the beginning of new convictions or the refreshment of old convictions. I pray, Father, for those who don't know how to take first steps, that that, that they wouldn't leave without finding help, Lord. That is really what discipleship is about. Discipleship has, has a goal in mind. It has a purpose. And it is ultimately to be like Jesus Christ, to be perfect as he is perfect. So please, Father, I I, I pray that we would be humble, we would be dependent, we would be earnest, we would be okay being exhausted uh, in our pursuit of the perfection which pleases you. Thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.